see me fiddling with my phone up here. I'm not checking Facebook. I, uh, we record the sermons here, so in the off chance that you just, you know, are, are killing yourself and hating yourself for having to miss a Sunday because you just love God's people and you love God's Word so much and you do not want to miss an opportunity to give and to participate in worship, but something comes up, despite all of your attempts and all of your efforts to try to keep your Sunday set apart to be with God's people, we understand and so we record the sermons, um, so you can find them online. Uh, they're just they're there on our church website, or you can get them on the podcast. So let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're a visitor this morning, or even our children, I would encourage you guys, grab the blue, the blue book in front of you in the pew rack, turn to 2 Corinthians, it's in the New Testament. Um, the chapter numbers are the big ones, the verse numbers are the little ones. And uh, we'll give you a moment to catch up with us. But that's going to really help you as, as we receive the word together that you have it laying open in your lap. As members uh, of our church, we're working hard yesterday, shampooing the carpet and uh, fixing toilets and painting and hanging blinds and laying pine straw and all the things that you see around the building. It felt almost like we were getting ready for the arrival of some kind of, you know, dignitary. You know, like a city, whenever they know the president's going to come for a stop on his, uh, on his way or something, they'll try to spruce things up real quick and they'll throw new paint up on things and spruce up the gardens and everything. And I think, you know, in some ways, that's right for us. And it's even good for us to feel that way week after week. Because every Sunday morning we are expecting the Lord Jesus our King to come and be with us. And today we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday that took place the week before Easter Sunday. Hold on one second. Palm Sunday. <laughs> Palm Sunday, those of you who aren't familiar maybe with the church calendar, that's the day that we celebrate that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, the Bible tells us, humble and mounted on a donkey. And Palm Sunday is really the perfect way to begin the Easter week because we need to be reminded of who Jesus is before we watch Him proceed to the cross. Before we witness all of the terrible injustice and the murder that took place at the cross and all the whippings and everything he suffered, we need to be reminded before he plunged headlong into that just who this person Jesus is. As he goes along the way, the story goes, the people, they begin to lay down their cloaks and and it's this patchwork quilt of a red carpet that they're putting together, welcoming the king back to his capital city. And as they go along, they don't cry out, Hooray! A nice teacher! Great! We're so excited! A really great guy who's really hospitable and kind to everyone. Or even, Hooray! It's a miracle worker! 
what they are doing, and they know and recognize exactly what they're doing, read the account in any of the four Gospels, they are heralding a king. In Matthew, they call out, Hosanna to the Son of David. In Mark, they cry, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In Luke, the people shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In John, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Palm Sunday reminds us before we get to Good Friday or Easter exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the King. And so the question that I want us to consider as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning is this. What kind of king are we welcoming on Palm Sunday? If you had to think up one defining characteristic of this king who's being welcomed into Jerusalem and all the palm branches and and all the fanfare, what is the defining characteristic of this man who's riding towards us on a donkey? I think as as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and as we... Consider Palm Sunday that the characteristic that's going to come to light is this. We are welcoming a generous king. We're welcoming a generous king. Just think about it for a second. For three years of relentless ministry, Jesus gave his time to us. He gave his resources, his healing, his teaching, his prayers, his miracles, his signs, his wonders, his sleepless nights. But when he had given everything there was to give, then he mounted a donkey and he rode towards Jerusalem in order to offer up the only thing left to give himself. We are welcoming on Palm Sunday a king who is willing to give his own life for the sake of his people. That is the heart of generosity. Palm Sunday rings with these words, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And it's the generosity that is on display in the person of Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday that we come together now to study in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a generosity that's on display week after week in the churches that Jesus himself is building with his own hands to be just like him. So if you've turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, And this not as we expected, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are looking to you. We're looking to your example. We're trusting in your completed work to be able to do what you're calling us to do this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you remember last week at the end of chapter 7, Paul was boasting about the Corinthians. He says, I bragged about you to Titus, and everything that I bragged about when he came to visit you, he found to be true, and not only true, but surpassingly so. The Corinthian church, they lived up to the hype. And so here in chapter 8, Paul explains why he has now sent Titus back to Corinth with this letter The Corinthians had promised to give help to support the struggling church in Judea. And Paul's been going around and asking all the churches, will you give some money and I'm going to carry it back to this struggling church that's being persecuted. But the Corinthians hadn't yet, they they had expressed a lot of desire and interest and enthusiasm about participating in this offering. But as of yet, Paul hadn't gotten a cent from them. And so Paul sends Titus back and he says, listen, you had such earnestness and great desire. Now let's follow through on this great generosity that you had good intentions about. So in the next two chapters, Paul is going to help them as they ponder in their hearts what they should set aside to give. He's going to help them discover a heart of generosity. And he does that by pointing them to three things this morning. He points them to Jesus, math, Jesus, math, Jesus, motive, and Jesus, mentality. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jesus, math, number one. And this is a phrase that I've heard Chad Dickert likes to use, and he explains Jesus, math is math that only Jesus can do. Um, you know, like feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. 
And not only that, but having 12 baskets of leftovers, right? That, that, this is math that does not add up. It's called Jesus math. And Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, listen, let me tell you about the kind of math that's happening here in Macedonia among these churches. There is some Jesus math happening among these congregations. Listen again to Paul's report in verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, let me give you a report about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So if you're taking notes and you want to write this little math equation down, this is the Jesus math equation. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. Paul says in the churches of Macedonia, as their joy just abounded and grew more and more, and as their poverty grew more and more extreme, you add those two things together, and the thing that overflowed and poured out of those churches was generosity. The more joy they had and the poorer that they got, the more they were giving away. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. And that this morning, brothers and sisters, is called Jesus math. It doesn't add up. It does not make sense. Paul even points out the absurdity in verse 3. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And I want to point out a few things here. And first is this. Who is Paul pointing to as an example of how to do finances and generosity in the church? Normally, you know, little, poor, bumpkin country churches like Macedonia would look up to Big, flashy, wealthy, big church, mega church, Corinthians. That's normally the way things go, you know, big and little brother. We think multi-million dollar capital campaigns, huge building funds, giant, enormous million dollar operating budgets. These are the example of generosity that little churches ought to look up to. But Paul reminds us, that Jesus is the one who pointed his disciples not to look at the rich as they were entering the temple, but at the widow who put in her two copper coins in the temple offering plate and said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Brothers and sisters, I think we can look around this morning and realize we are not the Corinthian church. We are a poor Macedonian church if there ever was one. But could the Apostle Paul write a letter about us and point a letter in, at College Street, point a finger at College Street Baptist Church and then send it to the megachurches in Columbia and the megachurches in Greenville and say, you want an example of generosity? Here's where you should look. You need to look at College Street Baptist Church. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing this morning to the Corinthians. 
There's some Jesus math happening there, folks. In College Street Baptist Church, of all places, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty have resulted in an overflowing abundance of generosity. I think the second thing we need to recognize about the Macedonian church is that they realized that it was a gift to give. It was a gift, a grace, a favor from the Lord to have the opportunity and the means to have anything to give. Look at verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And then Paul says, and, and it wasn't what we expected But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul and his companions, they roll into Macedonia and they're looking at these churches and they see how poor they are. They see how dilapidated everything is. And Paul immediately says, I'm not even going to ask these people for money. That would be a shame on me to ask these poor people to give money to support other poor people in Jerusalem. You guys don't even worry about it. You're doing great. Just keeping the doors of the church open. And Paul says, but these Macedonians, they pleaded, they begged me. They tried to force that money into my pocket and saying, please, Paul, we want to give because we recognize how much it is a gift from God that we have anything to give, that we have a chance to give. It was their privilege It was their blessing, an opportunity for fellowship to give. It is a gift to be able to give. And you know, sometimes I wonder, maybe we don't recognize that until we do allow Palm Sunday to come back into our view. Because the supreme example of this equation, joy plus poverty equals generosity, is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Think about it. What kind of king has to borrow a donkey to ride into his own capital city? What kind of king? How poor did he have to be that he didn't even have anything to ride on? Jesus comes to us on Palm Sunday as a king with nothing to his name. By the end of the week, even the garment that he wore would be stripped off of him and raffled off. But when Jesus was at his most extreme poverty, there he is, hanging completely naked on the cross. He is overflowing and abounding and pouring out with generosity the greatest gift he could ever give us, his own flesh and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Brothers and sisters, what a supreme gift it is to be able to give. Paul says the Macedonians were moved to give to others because they had first given themselves to the Lord. So if you're not a believer this morning, whether you're a student or a child or a visitor, non-believer, I don't want you to give a single cent to this church, to any missions offering, to anything, without first giving yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the first thing that any person needs to do before they will ever discover what this generosity really feels like, this weird Jesus math that poverty plus joy equals generosity. You will never understand it until you have come to the cross and you've seen it in the person of Jesus Christ. What I'm talking about is utter foolishness until you have given your life to the Son of God who laid down His life for you. And then, then you'll begin to discover the beauty, number one, of Jesus' math. In verse 6, Paul then explains to us what it was that brought Jesus to the gates of Jerusalem. What was it that caused Jesus to pass through those gates knowing it was the point of no return? Knowing that as he proceeded in one side of the city of Jerusalem, that by the end of the week they would be taking him out the other side and there would be a cross waiting for him there. What was it that motivated him? What's the Jesus motive behind his overflowing generosity? Well, if you've read 1 Corinthians, and uh, Paul even hints at it here, we heard this morning in chapter 8, that this Corinthian church, they've just got everything. They're just oozing with, with resources and people and funds. And, you know, they had every spiritual gift that you could list. Wealth, knowledge, they excelled in everything. Paul says, I boasted about you and you proved to overflow and abound and have even more than what I told Titus that you had. And so he sends Titus back to test the one thing that they've yet to follow through on. And he's testing Their generosity, Paul says in verse 7. But as you excel in everything, faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, he says, don't tell anybody, but you're our favorite church, Corinthians. (laughs) You excel in everything. See that you excel in this act of grace as well. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Did you hear it there? What did Paul say was the motive that he was driving at? What's he trying to prove by their genuineness? What is the Jesus motive? What is it that moved Jesus to give everything away? Paul says it's this genuine love. The Jesus motive is genuine love. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's not genuine love if it doesn't move your heart to give. That's what Paul is showing us. It is not genuine love until it moves your heart to give. You excel in everything. You've got great faith. You've got great speech. You've got all this knowledge. You've got great earnestness. Paul says, in fact, you have the most of our love of any of the churches. Now prove your love is genuine by also being great in giving. By being great in generosity, he says you need To find the Jesus motive in your heart, you need to have genuine love. 
Jesus may have been riding a donkey, but it was genuine love and genuine love alone that brought him through the gates of Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. He knew exactly what was waiting for him in that city. He knew what great cost he was going to have to pay if he passed through those city gates. We need Palm Sunday to come before Good Friday because it shows us through a great juxtaposition how far and how great a loss the king was willing to suffer. Going from us recognizing that he is the king of the entire universe to then being stripped of everything and suffering and dying in our place. How poor Jesus became in order that we might become rich. If we mistakenly think, you know, that Jesus is just some carpenter out of Nazareth, we, we, uh, we might accidentally think the cross is just some sad story about a guy who got mixed up with the wrong crowd. If we think Jesus is just another wise teacher, we may just chalk up his execution to another philosopher who is just a little bit too far ahead of his time. If we think Jesus was just a champion of the people, then the cross is simply just another infuriating miscarriage of justice. But, if on Palm Sunday we realize who Jesus really is, that He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, and then we get to the cross, we realize what a gift Look at how rich he was. Look at how poor he has become. What amazing grace we have received in the Messiah, the King, Jesus Christ. You know, the kings of earth had huge pyramids to be buried in. Jesus didn't even have a grave. They had to borrow one. Borrowed a donkey on Palm Sunday, had to borrow a grave on Good Friday. That's how poor he became. Are we willing to lay aside all of our wealth and possessions and become poor in order that others may become rich? Well, that's not fair. I've done all this hard work for this money. And now I'm supposed to just give it away to others? Give it away to the church? Can you imagine? Jesus comes out of the grave, goes back to heaven, sits down at the right hand of God, and then he says, I've done all this hard work. I put up for 33 years with these filthy humans and all their diseases and all their needs. And I suffered. I was beaten wrongly. I was crucified wrongly. I endured the cross for a crime I didn't commit. I went into the grave and I'm back. And I've done all of this hard work, all of this righteousness. Don't you dare ask me to give it away now. No. Jesus did all of that hard work so that he could give it away. It's genuine love that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's genuine love that held him on the cross on Good Friday. It's genuine love that moves him to give himself to purchase poor sinners 
like us, slaves even, to be his own. It was genuine love that caused him to take the form of a servant bearing our sins on the cross so that we might become rich. That's the Jesus motive. Genuine love. Well, we need to discover Jesus' math in our church. We have to be driven by Jesus' motives. And lastly, we need to arm ourselves with a Jesus mentality. A Jesus mentality. So Paul t- tells the Corinthians, he says, I want you to match your action with your desire. You want to do it. You told us you want to do it. You were enthusiastic. You were earnest. You want to give. So give. That's what Paul basically says, the last part of this section. And he doesn't put a number on it. He doesn't say every person needs to give 10%. He doesn't say go around the church and everyone put a $20 bill in there. He says what you are ready to give, give. Verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul says look at what you have and give accordingly. God's not asking you to give out of that person's bank account. He's asking you to give out of what He's given to you. But how do we determine how much? You know, I want to make sure I give enough. Or how little can I get by on, maybe, might be thinking. Hopefully not. That's where the Jesus mentality comes in. And here is Jesus' mentality. What is mine is ours. What is mine is ours. Listen once more to how Paul closes this section in verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathers much, gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. On Palm Sunday, Jesus allowed himself to be heralded by Galileans and whoever wanted to follow behind him. And you know what he was showing us? I'm not ashamed to call these people brothers and sisters. I am not ashamed to be identified with these people. He allowed us to claim him. In fact, he wants us to claim him. He wants us to join in the parade. He wants us to march behind Him and to celebrate and and be excited about who He is and what He's come to do. That He wants us to know that He is a King who has come to share everything He has with us. He is a King with a Jesus mentality. He says, what is mine is ours. Everything that Jesus stood to gain once He passed through the gates of Jerusalem and He endured the cross and the shame and then rose from the dead, everything that He stood to gain on that side of the grave, He was saying, on this side of the gates, you follow Me, and what's Mine is going to be ours. We're going to share it. Paul tells us one of the ways that you can Discover this Jesus mentality is to think of your money as manna. That's what that quote at the end there in verse 15, he's referring back to Exodus. This is what was said about the people of Israel in the wilderness when they collected manna. 
So the story goes, when God set his people free, remember they were slaves in Egypt, he brings them into the wilderness, and the thing about a wilderness is that there's no trees, fruit trees, there's no grain out there, there's nothing to eat. And so after about a week, the people's tummies start to grumble, and God does this weird thing where he makes it rain bread from heaven. And the people are really weirded out by it, and that's why they call it manna, which means, what is this? Or in layman's terms, what the heck? <laughs> There's bread falling from the sky here, folks. For 40 years, 14,600 days, every morning the Israelites woke up, they did not fail to find fresh manna laying on the ground waiting for them. All the way to the promised land. Can we doubt any less that God is going to give us our daily bread? As his people not rescued out of slavery to Egypt, but out of slavery to Satan himself. Every day as we walk this wilderness and we wait for Jesus to come back. You see, when we, when we have this mentality, we recognize and we visualize that our money is really manna. All of a sudden, our perspective begins to shift. You see, manna, it, it melted when the sun rose. It reminds us how fleeting money really is. Manna fell from heaven. Sometimes I think we think that our money comes from our bosses. And if your boss tells you that, you can remind him, that is not where my money comes from. It comes from heaven, from the Lord. Manna had to be gathered. It took work. Manna didn't fall on the Sabbath, which reminds us it comes to those who honor and trust in the Lord. But here's the thing. Manna was meant to be shared because if you didn't, it would spoil. If you went out one day and you're gathering your manna rations, you know, and it just so happened the manna clouds rained more manna in your yard than they did in your neighbor's yard, and you collected way more than you could eat in one day, and your neighbor didn't have enough to eat, there was absolutely no point in you keeping the extra because you know what would happen overnight? Worms and maggots in the morning. You could put that thing in the freezer, in the fridge, whatever, to try to preserve it. It didn't matter. If you tried to store it overnight and keep the extra for yourself, it's spoiled. And so God built into this manna He was giving His people the principle that you share. You share it. You realize what's mine is ours. You discover the Jesus mentality. Can we arm ourselves with that kind of Jesus mentality? Are you ready to share what God has given to you with those who need it? Are you willing to say, what is mine is ours, that everything that I have is just gifts coming down from heaven, from the Father of lights, like manna from heaven. And if I had more manna than my brother does, God must have given it to me not to keep. God's given it to me so that I can share it. We're about to have to raise a significant amount of money to repair the roof here at College Street. I didn't know that was going to happen this month. 
But I did have this sermon planned like six months ago. And uh, it's not an accident that we're doing a class on how to manage God's money, which was planned back in April of last year. How will the churches of Newberry hear about what is happening at College Street Baptist Church? Will it seem reasonable to them? Will the things that we're doing to raise the funds and to get the projects done? No, they kind of make sense. It's how every church does it. Or will they look at the impossibility of what is taking place and will they say, there's something weird happening over there. There's some kind of Jesus math happening at College Street Baptist Church. Look at how poor those people are. But look at how much joy they have in the gospel that they share together. And every week, it's just overflowing in generosity and we don't even know where it's coming from. Can we be a church that discovers the Jesus motive? Will our season of sacrificial giving actually grow our hearts in genuine love for one another and for our Lord Jesus Christ? What is more, will our generosity not just overflow into our own building, but will it flow out of the doors and to our missionaries and church planters and all those who have need? Certainly have need to hear of a Savior who loved them with genuine love. And can we lastly foster a Jesus mentality? Can we really get on board with treating everything we have, our time, our resources, our money, our homes, our families, our jobs, everything, with the mentality that what is mine is ours? As we close, here's what I want you to do. I mentioned in our announcements that next week we're taking up the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. It's an offering that supports church planters and missionaries across the United States and Mexico and Canada. Before we gather a single cent to repair the roof of this church, I want to encourage us to give generously to those outside of our church who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus. And then we'll trust that God will provide what we need for our roof. Let's pray. Lord, help us to seek your kingdom and your righteousness first. Help us to trust that you will add all of these things to us that we need as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your generosity. May it move our hearts as well to give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.